0: Recently had an opportunity to take one of my children to a medical facility. I guess you could call it an opportunity. Um, And in this medical facility, there was a sign on one of the doors that said triage. And my son, that doesn't give it away, uh, which one I was with, asked, what is triage? What does that word mean? How would you define what a triage is? What I said was basically, what that means is, Different people have different kinds of problems, and nobody can deal with all those problems at one time. So you have to figure out which one's most important. So that's how I define triage. You can debate that after we're done if you would like. But the main part of what I was saying there was that you have different kinds of problems, and you can't deal with them all at one time. And some of those problems are humongous and will be with people for a really long time. Some of those problems are hopefully easier to deal with. But in our lives, we have really big problems as well. And that's what Psalms 129 and 130 are telling us. And they're talking about two very significant problems, but I'll also say, right from the outset, two very different kinds of problems. Two very different kinds of problems laid out here in Psalms 129 and 130. This is on page 486, if you did not bring a Bible and you're using one that's provided for you. In Psalms 129 and 130. So like I said, even though we're grouping these psalms together, these two psalms are dealing with very different kinds of very significant problems. Uh, One other difference that I'll point out right at the outset is that one of these psalms seems to be more corporate, like it's about the whole nation of Israel, and the other is more individual. So it's really just one person crying out to God on behalf of his own needs. And so be aware of that, uh, those differences as I read aloud. I'll read both Psalms aloud here at the outset, and then we'll study them together. Psalms 129 and 130 in our Bibles. Psalm 129 says, "...greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say..." Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? When we consider these two problems, we recognize that what these psalms are are telling us is that if you're going to walk with God, you're going to need to live by faith. And part of living by faith means waiting on God to bring the solution to those significant problems in your life at his time and in his way. So living by faith means waiting on God. I think that's what we can generally say about these two psalms put together, but they're dealing with two very different kinds of problems we need to wait for God to deal with. We need to live by faith, waiting for him to deal with. So Psalm 129 calls us to wait for the Lord to deal with the problem of enemies. Now you'll notice that these are specifically God's enemies, but if you're associated with God, that means that they're your enemies then. So I word it that way, that this talks about enemies and particularly God's enemies because I don't want us thinking that this is just talking about the guy at work who doesn't like you or the neighbor whose kids throw rocks at your car or those types of things maybe those things are your greatest enemies but specifically the the enemies that Psalm 129 is dealing with are the enemies who made God's people's lives miserable and maybe Again, as we think through the context of these psalms of ascent, maybe these are people who would threaten God's people as they were walking on their way to Jerusalem to go worship God at their annual pilgrimages. Again, that's what I think the psalms of ascent are all geared toward, the going up, the ascending part, is God's people going up to Jerusalem to worship as they were called to do several times a year. And maybe on the way, there are people who are mocking them, who are maybe throwing stones at them, who are... uh, calling down blasphemous titles about God. And the psalmist here is saying, this problem that I'm dealing with of enemies is nothing new. It's actually a problem I've been dealing with forever. But again, when he says that, he's saying that on behalf of all of Israel. So you just kind of have to back up and think, well, where else has Israel dealt with problems before this in the Old Testament. And you can go all the way back into Genesis, but particularly Exodus, when Israel becomes a nation and you have uh, the children of Israel at that point, even before they're formally a nation in Exodus 19. Even before that, you have them in Israel just wanting to go and worship God and Pharaoh, a great enemy, great as in powerful and significant And evil enemy, making life miserable for God's people. So maybe that's who the psalmist has in mind when he's speaking on behalf of all of Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me. You're starting off with this vague pronoun reference here. Who is the they? And you don't exactly know, but you figure out along the way it's just these terrible enemies of God and of God's people. The psalmist says that these enemies have been his enemies from his youth from the beginning of Israel's history. And again, like I said, probably from especially from Pharaoh on down. What this sounds like is that some people, in this case the nation of Israel, some people deal with lots of problems throughout their entire lives. You've probably met people like that. Maybe that's actually how you would define your own life. You'd say, man, it has been like one body slam after another, where every time I feel like I can finally get back up, I'm knocked back down. That seems like that's what Israel's history was like, but we need to be mindful of the fact that some people experience, some people in our own lives, again, perhaps some people in our own congregation, some people experience long and persistent seasons of tremendous hardship. And so we should be mindful of that and be compassionate toward those people. Life is hard. People are mean. Sometimes every day is a battle. Sometimes, for some people, getting out of bed is a huge victory because life is so hard for them. And so if that's not your experience, <clears throat> praise God. That's what I want to urge you to do. Say, thank you, Lord, for your mercy that I actually enjoy getting up in the morning and actually feel like I can you know, cross everything off in my to-do list. So if that's not your experience, praise God, and realize that if that's the case, that you you enjoy life, life is not terribly hard for you right now, praise God, and then use, as a result of that, you probably have some emotional stability or emotional capital built up that other people might not have. You might even have some financial capital stored up that other people might not have because your life has gone relatively smoothly smoothly in the mercy of God. And so... If you have opportunity to use that emotional stability, that emotional capital built up, or financial capital, then uh, to serve other people, praise the Lord. And I would urge you to consider that ministry opportunity the Lord's given you. But if that has been your experience, or maybe I could just say, if that is your experience right now, like your life is really bad and really hard, as it is for some of our folks, I just want to urge you that, though perhaps you are weary, if you are a child of God, one way we can look at this is that your hard circumstances, the things in your life that you would change if you had an opportunity are one way that he shows his mercy toward you and he urges you to take your eyes and stop looking at the garbage right in front of you and cast your eyes to the other side of the river again to use kind of John Bunyan metaphor language there we're living on one side of the Jordan River from biblical language, John Bunyan language Our heavenly city, our real home is on the other side. And so maybe the Lord's taking these hard circumstances, these body slams one after another to make you say, I can't wait to live on the other side. And maybe this is the Lord's mercy to you to help you remember this world is not your home. That you're a pilgrim. And that's what the Psalms of Ascent are all about, is that you are living a pilgrimage as the people of God. But even though... Israel has faced tremendous enemies. You notice in verse uh, 2, the second half of verse 2, that they haven't been successful. I love this line. Yet they have not prevailed against me. They've been going at it by this time for hundreds of years trying to make Israel miserable, trying to make them turn against the Lord and so forth. But they have not prevailed. And so I just want to encourage you to joyfully reflect on the way that the Lord has kept your head from sinking. How he has sustained you in the hard seasons of your life. And praise him for the fact that they have not prevailed against you. Verse 3 shows that this persistent sense of the enemies continues. The the, the plowers plowed upon my back. It's probably metaphorical language. Some people take it as being perhaps literal that maybe in the exile, God's people were getting whipped. Whipped. And maybe it left lines in their backs in some ways. So maybe there is, there is some element of literalness to this. Otherwise, if it's just metaphorical, it just makes you think of a farm and you see those straight lines running through the fields and the bean fields or the cornfields or whatever else and the furrows the, and the, the left by the plows. But instead of it being in a field, it's on your back. Like, your life has been hard. That's what that's saying there. They made long their furrows. They kept on going at me and making my life miserable. And as we think about whether this was literal or metaphorical, we do know that Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, referring to a prophecy about, that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus, said that his back had lines across it. That he was beaten again and again for the sake of your sin. And so, praise the Lord that he endured... Jesus endured the hate-filled beating of his back so that you would be delivered. That is remarkable grace for you to to take joy in today. God's enemies are persistent. That's what verses 1 through 3 are teaching us here as we wait for the Lord to deal with the problem of enemies. Verse 4 says that God's enemies are helpless before God's power. You notice that there's quotation marks, at least here in the ESV, most likely in other translations you might have quotation marks, around verses 1 through 3. And so then verse 4 is clearly set apart in some way from the content of verses 1 through 3. I think there is a change of direction here. If verses 1 through 3 is saying that God's enemies are persistent or are constantly making life miserable, verse 4 says that they're helpless before God's power. Like, even though they are going to town on you, they actually can't ruin you. They actually can't take your life from you any sooner than God's going to let them. As one example. God's enemies are helpless before God's power. Verse 4 says, The Lord is righteous. And He holds the, the psalmist holds the Lord here in contrast to the wicked people who are the enemies of God. And what has God done to show His righteousness? He has cut the cords of the wicked. What do you think those cords are? Maybe you have different kinds of cords in your mind. Most likely these are the ropes that prisoners would have had their hands tied behind their backs with. What's interesting is that the same word and concept of cords or ropes is used elsewhere in the Psalms, particularly in Psalm 2, but it's in a very different context there. There in Psalm 2, it's God's enemies, the same people we're talking about here, just in reverse, God's enemies saying, we want to get these ropes, these cords that are on our hands, we want to get them off, we're sick of this oppression we feel from God and from His Messiah. That's Psalm 2, verse 4. So they want to break the cords of the Lord, but here it's the Lord who has cut the cords of the wicked. Again, I think what this means is the Lord is righteously freeing his people from the oppression that they were feeling, that they were receiving at the hands of their enemies. So again, if this psalm was written during exile or after exile, it's essentially saying the Lord has delivered us from these awful circumstances. But even if it's Uh, before the exile, and this is just a song that God's people felt like they needed to sing, it's because they could look back on previous times when they were enslaved in Egypt and so forth. But the Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. I think one reminder that we can draw or glean from verse 4 here is that God does not let wickedness go unpunished. We can patiently wait for his day. And so if you are the one if you're here and you're the one who's actually inflicting these wounds on other people, I would urge you to stop right now and to repent right now. Whether these are physical afflictions that you're, you're inflicting people with or whether it's just you uh, sitting there with silent malice toward your spouse or your children or other people in your life. if You're using cutting words. These are sin patterns that you need to repent of right now. Stop these destructive patterns. And if you are not a Christian, please know that God does not mess around. This verse says God is righteous. He's not going to let the wicked get away with this. God will not be mocked. They will have their ways destroyed. Verses 5 through 8 continues this theme in some ways but specifically by saying that God's enemies are destined for judgment. God's enemies, all those who hate Zion, that's I'm taking that phrase and kind of condensing it into the one word, enemies. God's enemies are destined for judgment. These verses are a terrifying warning. If you are here and you're not a Christian, these verses should make you sit up in your chair and be like, what am I doing resisting God? And we would say the same thing. Please stop resisting God and turn in faith to Jesus. Because the enemies of God's people will not prosper, will not prevail Will not go unpunished. So don't mess with God. Some of this afflicting that these that the psalmist is talking about here, that these enemies who hate Zion have been putting on God's people, some of this afflicting is active and particular and like aimed specifically at God and his people. Uh, Sometimes it's through active persecution of Christians. Sometimes it's through creating legislation that is designed to make the lives of Christians miserable or to make the activities of Christians illegal. And again, we don't have to look too far in the world to find examples of this. Some of this afflicting that God's enemies do against God's people is more passive. Maybe it's more general. So, for instance, people in the pornography industry may not be aiming specifically at Christians In their work. They may not even be aware that there is a God they are rebelling against in their work. But what they do is a direct assault on God and on his people and on his ways. It ruins lives. It destroys families. It sears consciences and it leads people into misery. And those who do this, this psalm says, will be judged. Verse 6 says that they will wither up. That should make you think of Psalm 1. That God's people are like a tree planted by rivers of water. God's enemies are like chaff that withers and blows away in the wind. And here it's just a different metaphor. Instead of chaff, it's like grass that grows on a housetop, which means there isn't very deep roots. It means it's in direct sun, so it's going to get scorched as soon as the weather turns really hot. And that grass is going to be worthless. And that's a picture of the judgment that God's people are going to experience. But I want to encourage you, as you think about this judgment, you see like... The grass withers up. The reaper doesn't even go bother to cut it down because there's nobody who's going to come and gather that kind of worthless grass together. No one's going to come and bless these people, these enemies. They're actually going to receive curses, which make you think back of Genesis 12. God says, All those who you know, are, are with Abraham will be blessed, all of his children, and all those who are against Abraham will be cursed. Well, those, that promise is magnified and clarified in the gospel. All those who are lined up with the seed of Abraham, which then is the offspring of David, which then is Jesus, which then is all those who are with Jesus, in union with Jesus, which is, in other words, all true believers, you will be blessed like Abraham. And those who are opposed to him will be cursed like the enemies of God. And so if you are in Christ, I want to encourage you that this description will not ever be applied to you this description of your life being worthless, of you being cut down and withering up and being blown away in the wind, of not receiving the blessing of God, if you're in Christ, instead of shame, you will receive honor. If you are in Christ, instead of being turned away, as you see it, the, the last line of verse 5, turned backward, you will be welcomed home. Instead of withering, you will be flourishing fruitfully. Instead of being cursed, you will be blessed. Instead of receiving the punishment of hell, you will receive the glories of heaven. And instead of experiencing eternal death, you will experience eternal life. This is how God deals with the problem of his enemies. So wait for the Lord to deal with the problem of his enemies. Psalm 130 then tells us to wait for the Lord to deal with the problem of your sin. Remember, Psalm 129 is general, is about all of Israel. Psalm 130 is specific. It's one person praying to God because he sees, I have a very different kind of problem. Maybe he has both, but in his, in his mind right now, his problem is way more significant than one of enemies who are opposed and making life difficult. Instead, he has a problem inside of him, and it's the problem of sin. It's the problem that he actually can't deal with in any way on his own. There are seven ways in which this psalm, or I should say seven pronouns that make it clear that this is one individual praying this psalm. So you notice that even in verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord hear my voice. And this goes on seven times. And so we know this is an individualized prayer, and it's a beautiful prayer, and it's one you should spend time thinking through. We put a book on the table just last week about memorizing scripture for life. So there's kind of like a guide on how to memorize Scripture. I would urge you to consider memorizing Psalm 130, just making this the passage you start with. Of course, you're welcome to start elsewhere, but this is relatively short and relatively easy to to memorize because of the repetition and so forth compared to some other psalms and, and passages. But this is a beautiful prayer of someone recognizing, I have a desperate problem that I can't deal with on my own, and it's the problem of sin. Verses 1 and 2 are this plea for God to hear. You, you see things like, uh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my voice, to the pleas for mercy. So this is the this specific request that God would hear him. Why does he need God to hear him? Because he's in depths. Where in the Bible do you think of someone or of Israel, leading up to this passage, who are in the depths? Well, for one... That makes you think of deep water, which makes you think of something like the Red Sea, which makes you think of God's people saying, like, we got to get across this this, this sea somehow, and there's no way we can do it. And God brings his people out of the depths, metaphorically speaking in that case. If you want to leave the metaphor behind and just think of someone who was actually in the depths, you can go read Jonah 2, and what Jonah does is kind of riff off of Psalm 130. I don't know that he's exactly quoting Psalm 130, but it sounds a whole lot like it. When he's in the belly of the fish, he's like, Lord, I'm in the depths and I need your help right now. And maybe you are in the depths right now. Maybe because of your own sin or because someone that you love has sinned against you or has sinned in a way that affects you. There's lots of ways that, that could happen. But this is a Cry out of those depths, out of those circumstances that you can do nothing to change in a request that the Lord would hear and respond. That's what he means when he says, be attentive to my cry. Like, do something, because I can't. The best I can do, and it's not a bad thing, is pray. We still need God to act on those prayers. And that's what verses 1 and 2 show us, is this, this plea for God to act Verses 3 and 4 show us the the, the presence of sin, but the joy in forgiveness. So verse 3 says, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, if you should count the sins in someone's heart and in someone's life, where is the person who would raise their hand and say, pick me, like I'll be fine on that day? There is nobody like that. You are not like that. You could not say, I think I have a clear conscience before God. Like, I just don't have any sin in my life. You can't raise your hand to that. So that's why you want to pray this prayer. Lord, if I should say, or if you should count sins, I can't stand. I can't be proven clear on the last day, in other words. If you stop right there, you're going to sink into the depths. (laughs) You stop at verse 3. Because it sounds like it's all bad. Like, my sin is so bad. And there is no hope. But verse 4 is the hope. But with you there is forgiveness. You know, Israel experienced forgiveness by going to the priest, and the priest offering blood on the altar, and atoning for sin in that way, covering the sin, so to speak. The high priest would put blood on the head of a goat and send that goat off into the wilderness. This is in Leviticus 16. And by that goat having blood on his head and walking off into the wilderness and probably eventually like wandering off into a, you know, falling off a cliff or getting stuck in bramble, he never comes back. What is that picture? You don't ever see that sin again. It's part of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. That sin is covered and it's taken away and that's why we read in Isaiah 53 that that we have laid our iniquities on him. The Lord has laid our iniquities on him and he has taken our sin away and we're never going to see it again. And that's exactly the solution to this problem of sin that we need because we cannot stand before God on our own two feet. We cannot stand before God with a what we would consider to be a clear conscience. Maybe we could say, well, I've sinned less than some other people, but that is never a question that the Bible asks. The Bible also doesn't ask, well, did you do more good than you did bad? Like, let's just weigh it out at the end, and there's this big judicial scale, and at some point it kind of teeters a little bit the other way, but as long as it comes out that you did more good than you did bad, which I don't think there ever has been a person who, de- who has, Even if you did, you still got to deal with all that bad stuff. It still needs to be covered. It still needs to be removed. And that is what the Lord does for us in the gospel. And so you hear these cries from the psalmist here. I need mercy. Lord, do something about it. I feel guilt because I am guilty. It's not just a feeling of guilt. Sometimes we just, you know, we feel bad that, you know, we didn't... Put our umbrella out for the lady, you know, on the way out to the store or something. Fine. You know, there are are ways you can think through that in a right Christian way. But there's a difference between feeling guilt and being guilty. And this passage is talking about you actually being guilty before God. And you have no remedy for that outside of Jesus Christ. And so this psalmist who wrote this well before Jesus came was looking forward to that day when Jesus would come. And would shed his blood on the cross and actually take, a, excuse me, take away sin once and for all. But for us, we stand on this side of the cross. We know exactly how this forgiveness is achieved, and it's not that our faith makes us righteous; it's that our faith in Jesus is what gives us access to the righteousness of Jesus. And so that then, instead of God looking at us and counting our iniquities, then He looks at us and He says, "Yeah, actually, you can stand." Because when I look at you, I see the righteousness of Jesus. Not because you're righteous, but because your eyes are on Jesus. So this is that uh, serpent on the pole idea in number 16. The people had significant problems all around them in the form of snakes. And what they needed to do was look at the serpent on the pole, and they would be healed from the snake bite. And it wasn't that they're suddenly righteous because of something they did is that their faith was on the serpent on the pole. And John 3 connects this. This is a picture of Jesus who was the serpent on the pole ultimately. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that this psalmist is eagerly waiting for the Lord and hoping in his word. And I just want to ask you, as you look at verse 5 there, what do you think The psalmist means when he says, I'm hoping in his word. I just want you to pause there and realize that no one who would have read this when it was written would have been carrying around a Bible. And even for hundreds of years after the whole Old Testament was written, no one was carrying around a whole Bible. The printing press wasn't developed until, what, late 1400s or so? So for us to be able to hold the whole Bible in our hands is a relatively recent and amazing privilege. So what I'm saying is, I don't think when the psalmist says, I'm hoping in God's word, that he's like, oh, the whole Bible! I think he has one specific idea in his head. And I'm just asking you to kind of be thinking through, well, what would that mean? What would be the content of that word? Or of that promise? If we change it to the word promise, does that help? What promise would the psalmist have been thinking of when he says, I'm hoping in your word? I think ultimately he's saying, I trust in God's trustworthiness to keep his promises, but what promises in particular? And you just start stacking them. So you have a promise in Genesis 3 that says God's going to crush the head of the serpent and deal with sin in some way. And that promise gets slightly more specific when we allude to the promise I mentioned earlier, of Genesis 12, that God's going to bless his people. What does that blessing even mean? We talked last week, does that mean like I never get sick or have to go to the doctor, so I never need to be triaged? Uh, Does that mean like I always have more money than I need? No. So there's got to be some other blessing. So how do we know what that blessing is? Well, fast forward more in the Bible. Where else does God make a promise that builds on those previous promises? And you just start like stacking them one on top of the other, and you come to things like the Abrahamic promises, the promises to Abraham, then you come to things like the promises to David that he's going to bring a son. And I think that's getting us right in the ballpark, if, if that's not specifically it. I think when the psalmist says, I take God at his word, I'm hoping in God's word. He's saying, I believe that God keeps his promises. And he made a promise that he's going to send a savior. He's going to come from Abraham and specifically through David. And we find out specifically in Luke 1 and 2 that that is Jesus. And so he's ultimately saying there's a redeemer who's going to come. And I think that's what he has in mind when he says, I'm hoping in his word, I'm hoping in a specific promise that at some point down the road, God's going to send the person who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to bring the blessings promised to Abraham, who's going to be the son from David. So that's the, the kind of background work we have to do. We just want to like fast forward and like assume uh, all of our New Testament knowledge. But when we think specifically of this psalmist, whatever his Old Testament knowledge was, he had something specific in mind there. And that's what we want to have in mind as well. And then you can apply it further. Yes, we hope in all of Scripture, we take God at his word on every point, but specifically because we know that he was keeping his promises even to those who had just a few parts of the Bible at the point that he made these promises. Why do you think verse 6 repeats itself? And if you're not sure, maybe tonight when you want to go to bed, try and stay awake the whole night. (laughs) Because that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the guy who has to keep an eye on the walls of, let's say, Jerusalem to make sure no bad guys are coming while everybody else is asleep. Because if you fall asleep, the whole city immediately goes into danger. And all your loved ones and all your friends and everybody you don't even know who's living in Jerusalem is suddenly at tremendous risk because you fell asleep. So the watchman waits up until the sun comes up and then somebody else takes over for him to guard the walls. And he cannot wait to see the sun come up over the horizon. And again, if you don't know what that feels like, you've got an opportunity in about 12 hours. So that's why I think he repeats himself here, is just to make you pause and be like, oh yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) I would wait a lot. I would feel a lot of urgency for the Lord. And when he says, My soul waits for the Lord, he's just saying, There is a problem that I can't solve. It's my sin. So I'm going to trust and wait for the one who is going to solve and trust uh, and solve this problem. The Lord deals with our sins that we commit in our own hearts. You have those. He also forgives the sins that you commit against your church. Probably have some of those as well. Against your family, they can tell you what they are. The Lord forgives the sins that you commit and the sins of things that you should have done but you didn't. We call those sins of commission and sins of omission, like you omitted things you should have done. The Lord forgives both of those kinds. What I'm doing is trying to give you different categories. What sins did the psalmist have in mind that he needed to be forgiven for? When he talks about these iniquities in verse 3 and in verse 8. And I'm just saying, whatever categories you come up with, Christian, if your hope is in Jesus, the Lord forgives you for every single one of those categories and every one of those individualized offenses, even the ones you're not aware of. That's incredible mercy, which is why we sing so often, our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Just taking a line from Romans 6 and saying, you can sin a whole lot, but the mountain of God's mercy is higher than the mountain of your sin. And as a Christian, you have the privilege of knowing that your sins are gone and that you have assurance of forgiveness. A pastor named Horatius Bonar talks about the assurance that he has, the security that he has in his heart this way. If he, God, takes my side, there is nothing to fear, either in this world or in that which is to come. If he is not on my side, if I am not on his, then what can I do but fear? Fear. Terror in such a case must be as natural and inevitable as in a burning house or in a sinking boat. Or, if I do not know whether God is for me or not, I can have no rest. In a matter such as this, my soul seeks certainty, not uncertainty. I must know that God is for me, else I must remain in the sadness of unrest and terror. Insofar as my actual safety is concerned, everything depends on God being for me. And insofar as my present peace is concerned, everything depends on my knowing that God is for me. Nothing can calm the tempest of my soul save the knowledge that I am his and he is mine. Do you enjoy that knowledge today? That your sins are gone, even if they are many? You enjoy that knowledge because your hope is in Jesus, not because you've been performing well lately, because it's been weeks since you yelled yelled at your wife or... Anything along those lines. And so when the psalmist says in verse 8 that he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, he means from all of your iniquities as well. If you put your hope in Jesus, this promise is for you. His word is sure and so you can surely wait on the Lord. We're going to take the Lord's supper in a moment and when we do what you're doing is you're saying I have a great problem. But unlike a medical professional who has to triage whose problem is he going to deal with first, which problem is greater or more life altering or life threatening, when you come to the Lord's table you're saying I'm as bad as everybody else, but my hope is in Jesus and he can deal with my sin. He has dealt with my sin through his work at the cross, through his resurrection. And so, yes, you have problems. Yes, your sin is great. But your greatest problem was already dealt with. And that's what we're going to celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. And so while you live with a sinful heart and while you deal with the enemies within and without, like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11, you deal with those enemies within and without, you deal with the sin in your heart, we walk by faith. We ask the Lord to continue to carry us through, and we wait on God to complete his work of redemption by taking us all the way home. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your Son, for the work he's accomplished, for the glorious realities of redemption, the sweetness of knowing that our sins are atoned for, knowing that full satisfaction has been paid. The ransom was completely paid your wrath was completely drunk by Jesus on the cross. And so we as Christians have a lightness about us and a freedom of conscience in a joy and an eagerness to please you and to walk with you and to tell others that we have been given $20 million and we don't know how to spend it all. That's what we have in the gospel. So make us people glad about the gospel and grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.